Hello, and welcome to the next episode of How Good It Is, a weekly podcast that takes a look at popular songs of the past and dives into their history, their meaning, or any other things that might be of interest surrounding those songs. My name is Claude Call because all the good names were taken. Hey, if you have any suggestions or questions of your own, or if there's a song you'd like me to look into, well, please feel free to email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter at HowGoodItIsPod, and you can check out the website HowGoodItIs.com for some additional tidbits. I've got a Facebook page, too, but uh, I haven't figured out that address yet. I'll have to share that with you next week. Today we're going to take a look at Phil Collins' signature song and his first solo hit, 1981's In the Air Tonight. In the Air Tonight was the first single off his debut solo album, uh, Face Value. It was a big hit right away, especially in the UK, where it went to number two. And the only thing that kept it out of the top slot over there was the posthumous release of John Lennon's Woman. Here in the United States, it peaked at number 19, but it also got a ton of airplay on the album-oriented stations, and it's still a staple of classic rock radio. And chances are it would have done better on the pop charts if American Top 40 stations weren't so reluctant to play records as long as this one, which clocks in at about five and a half minutes. Even the edit for the single is only about mm, 30 seconds shorter, maybe. This song is kind of like the movie Citizen Kane. People gave that film a lot of credit for doing a bunch of cool technical things from a cinematic standpoint, but hardly any of it was invented by its director, Orson Welles. Welles just managed to use some existing techniques in a creative way that results in a visually stunning film. By the same token, In the Air Tonight, and much of the Face Value album really, took a lot of small technical innovations and combined them to create a whole that was greater than the sum of its parts. But before we talk about that, let's get a few things out of the way, specifically the rumors surrounding the origins and meaning of the song's lyrics. The first story, and probably the one that most people know, is that Collins stood by and watched while a man who raped his wife drowned. Another version has Collins writing this about a man who watched another person drown and then sang it to him at a concert. And yet another variation, and this is probably the most complicated one, claims that when Colin was a young boy, he witnessed a man watching another man drowning, but he himself was too young and too far away to help. Later on, he hired a private detective to find the man, sent him a free ticket to his concert, and premiered the song that night with the spotlight on the man the whole time. Let me say once and again, once and for all, none of those are true. However... That doesn't mean that the truth can't be just a little bit creepy. In 1980, Phil Collins and his first wife, Andrea Bertarelli, divorced, and there was a lot of anger involved on both sides for a while. Collins was so devastated that he actually left the band Genesis for a short period after they finished a tour, but he also channeled some of that energy into writing songs. As a result, most of the songs on the Face Value album were originally intended to be messages to his first wife, including this one, I Missed Again, which was the second single off the album. So while Collins has been a little bit coy about the subject matter of the songs on this album, there have been a couple of stories attached to it that he didn't really deny, which forced Bertarelli to finally break her silence. 
For instance, there was a rumor that she'd run off with a decorator and a painter, which Collins underlined during an appearance on the TV show Top of the Pops by placing a bucket of paint and a brush on top of a workbench next to his keyboard. He denied at the time that it had anything to do with her affair, but Bertarelli wasn't buying it, and while she doesn't deny the affair, she also took pains to point out that he had effectively left the marriage already between the frequent touring and some likely extramarital adventures on his part. And there are accusations on both sides of anger management issues and a bunch of other stuff that it, it's just really too unsavory to go into at this point, especially, you know, many, many years later. So let's come back to some of the technical stuff. The guitarist on this track, Daryl Sturmer, in an interview with Uncut Magazine in 2016, noted that his part was recorded much later in a studio in Los Angeles as opposed to the rest of the record, which was recorded in uh, United Kingdom. He said he sat in the control room with Collins, and his amplifier was in the studio with the volume cranked all the way up. And he said, I hit this chord, which Phil described as the sound of an electric razor. He also said, people write me emails about that chord asking what it is. The song's in the key of D minor, but the chord itself has no minor notes. It's a low A and a D and another A and a D, but it depends on how you play it. It has to have that overdriven, distorted sound from the amp. It's a distant sound, but a distant, powerful sound. It's a sound you imagine being definitely loud, even a mile away. The other thing that's extraordinary about this record is the drumming. Most of the drumming on this track actually comes from a drum machine, believe it or not. Uh, there was some, you know, drum overlays in the song, but for the most part, Phil Collins used the drum machine to help him compose the song, and he just kept using it for the recording session. If you're interested, the drum machine pattern is the Roland CR78 Disco 2 pattern, with a little bit of programming thrown in. But the thing that really releases the song's tension is the part that the fans call the magic break, a drum fill that Ozzy Osbourne once called the best ever. Now, while it's probably one of the most popular parts of the song, Collins himself didn't think much of it at the time. In the Uncut Magazine interview, he said, I didn't think about the drum fill, I just did it that particular take, and that's the one we used. We didn't sit there thinking, oh boy, their mouths are going to be dropping when they hear this. It was nothing like that. But really, it wasn't just the drum fill, it's the way it sounded. The sound was created new, using a new process that we now call uh, gated reverb. It was a popular sound during much of the 80s, and I've noticed it appears to be making a comeback in popular music today. The sound was discovered in 1979 when recording engineer Hugh Padham was working with Collins on an album for Peter Gabriel. Now because the control room and the studio are sonically isolated from one another, a circuit is often set up in the mixing board, it's called reverse talkback, and it allows the control room to communicate with the studio and vice versa when the studio microphones are shut off. The reverse talkback in this particular mixing board was equipped with a compressor so that it didn't matter how close the audio source was to the talkback microphone, everything would come through at the same volume. It's not a high fidelity sound, but it's enough for basic communication. At one point, Padam had turned on the talkback circuit, and Collins, who didn't know the circuit was on, started playing the drums. Padam was pretty amazed at the way the drums sounded, so overnight they rewired the mixing board so that the drums could be recorded through a talkback circuit in a more formal manner. Later models of that mixing board actually allowed you to record through the talkback circuit by pushing a button.
So this basically became Phil Collins' signature sound for his solo albums and for the next few albums he did with Genesis and for other artists. Here's Collins playing drums on Frida's I Know There's Something Going On, which he also produced. It was used in a lot of other records not associated with him too, though. In fact, Prince was especially enamored of the sound. Here it is being used in Erotic City. Perhaps the best-known live performance of In the Air Tonight took place in 1985 when Phil Collins played it twice during the Live Aid Benefit concert. First, he played it early in the show at Wembley Stadium in London. Then, taking advantage of the time zone shift, he hopped on a Concorde to Philadelphia and played it again for the crowded JFK Stadium. Good evening, Philadelphia! Good evening, America! Good evening, London! Good evening, the world! I was in England this afternoon. Funny old world, isn't it? But this is the other song that I know on the piano. In the Air Tonight has been used many, many times in movies and in television shows, perhaps most famously in the debut episode of the show Miami Vice, which really went a long way toward informing the overall feel of the show. And that's it for this edition of How Good It Is. Listen, if you want to get in touch with me, you can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com or you can follow me on Twitter at howgooditispod or... You can check out the show's website, howgooditis.com, where I throw in a few extra bits for you. Next time, we're going to discover how good it is to find out what this song is really all about. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you then. Hey.